Thanks for listening to the podcast from Jonathan Combs and the preaching team at Eastgate Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Check us out on the web at eastgate.church for more. And now, here's the sermon. Good morning, church. Good to see all of you. So thankful this morning to be preaching again to you out of the, of the Word of God and being in this series called Renovate, this series that has been pretty impactful for me personally, just kind of wrestling with what it looks like uh, to be renovating my heart and what it looks like to be reconsidering the way I think, the way my passions line up, where I'm at really truly with, with the Lord Jesus. And that's, that's been the heart of this series. Uh, but I want to start doing something, um, something new perhaps to us, but something that's been on my heart for a bit. And as we're dealing with this renovating our hearts thing, it's, it's both individual, but it's also corporately. And, and something that I think is happening, at least in our city and perhaps some surrounding cities, is that there's a, there's a bigger dream than just one church trying to take the whole city. There's the Big C Church, uh, a group of, of various pastors who are serious about the gospel, getting together, dreaming big, and believing that God can change a community and so a lot of us are beginning to pray for each other. But I want to take a moment and let you peer behind that window with me. And let's, let's pray together for some local churches. So today I want to pray uh, for Inglewood Church, one of the bigger churches in town. Getting to know uh, Pastor Chris Aiken over there. He's recently had a death in the family. And so something specific to pray for him this morning as he's preaching. And that's weighing heavy on him, I'm sure. Uh, but let's take just a pause for a minute and pray for our friends. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would bless our, our sister church over at, over at Inglewood. And Lord, uh, we know that they're doing amazing things. They have for quite some time. You've used them in, in mighty ways in this city. And I ask God that you would do far more and abundant than what we've seen so far. That you would fill their, their rooms with people. That, that the gospel would be clear. That that community would be changed that you would build an army there at Inglewood ready to share the gospel with this city. Be with Pastor Chris this morning as I'm assuming he's preaching uh, and, and dealing with the loss of his brother. What a heavy burden this morning. So I just pray for him, give him strength and peace that comes only from you. I pray that the gospel is clear this morning, there as it is here. We love you. Do these things in your mighty name. Amen. Our series, Renovate, has been based on this theme verse, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, where it says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Keep it with all vigilance. That's been the aim of this series is to dig deeper to see what's really motivating us, our passions, our mind. This morning, our will. Our very will, the thing that really drives us, uh, often called the heart in Scripture or the soul, that's that willpower, where is it leading you, where is it driving you? This is the, the center, the control center, the seat of your will, and where all the decisions come from. This book I've been kind of pitching your way, Dallas Willard's Renovation of the Heart. Good read, I'm not quite finished, but he says this in his book, and I would recommend it to you. He says, single-minded and joyous devotion to God and his will, to what God wants for us, and to service to him and to others because of him is what the will transformed into Christ-likeness looks like. This is what it looks like, single-minded, joyful devotion to the Lord, which begins to cause us service not only to him but others. This is why Jesus once said in a, in a, in a place that we could look back at often, and that is not my will, 
but yours be done. As he's facing the cross, this is what he had to say. I wonder this. I wonder, have you learned to pray as he did? Now, we have to admit something when we pray that prayer, that it's scary. I, I, don't, I don't belittle that at all. That's actually kind of scary to say, not my will, which we're pretty good at following. At the same time, we're also pretty aware that it doesn't work so well all the time. Now, sometimes your, your will and your plan, they kind of work out. Maybe it's because you're such a bulldog and you make it happen. Even, it, even in spite of what God might, might be aiming your way, you, you still make it happen. You kick doors open to make it happen. But this thing is life-changing, not my will. The Savior himself says this. He understands at the Garden of Gethsemane that what is coming is what is intended for him. This is the main purpose of his coming is to save us. And the only way he could do that was sacrifice. He knows the pain which is coming. And yet, in that moment as he's talking, wrestling with the Father, going, is there any other way but this I know? Not my will, but yours be done. That's a difficult prayer to pray, and yet, it's the thing that frees us. And that's going to be, I think, the argument of the text this morning as we're in the book of Romans, is that actually making that decision, not my will but yours be done, will finally set us on the course we were purposed and designed to be on. The thing that really gives us joy in this crazy word that's so hard to get at, peace. So hard to find peace in our life. Often it's because we can't quite yet say, not my will but yours be done. Not my will. So instead we live with what some call the splintered will. I think a lot of Christians are here. I would even argue that are right many Christians, it's not that we have trouble knowing the will of God, it's that we have trouble obeying it. And we have a lot of trouble with that. And it causes us the splintered will, if you will, which is Basically, how can I get my way rather than how can I please God? It becomes an exaltation of self rather than submission to God. That's our natural tendency. And it doesn't really change just because we said yes to Christ. There's an ongoing transformation that has to happen. We have to continue to say yes, not my will, but yours every single day. In Paul's letter to the Romans, he, appears, he appeals to the believers here to fully submit themselves to God, to be transformed to the will of God. We can do this too. I think we'll see, and these, these are really in sequential order, so I'm calling them steps today. You, you kind of can't do step three unless you've done one and two. So if you get nothing else today, try to get step one. <laughs> but I'm going to give you all three as we dig into Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I've only got two verses today, so if you're thinking, man, we might make it to lunch, i got no promises. There's a lot to unpack here. And so, first two verses of Romans 12. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. God bless the reading of his word. Amen? How do we do this? How do we yield to the Spirit? How do we yield to, to the Lord? How do we submit our will to God for renovation? The first one may be the hardest step. But it's the clearest, I think, in this text. And that is this ugly word, 
that, I, that really is what he's talking about, and that's the word surrender. Surrender. Last week we talked about this idea of yielding. It's a very similar aspect. Surrender every area of your life to God. Now I'm guessing most of you who are in the room right now have surrendered some areas of your life to God. But that every word is a hard one. That every word is the scary one. What about this piece, God? What about that? Because if I surrender that, it's funny. I think as Christians we know if I surrender that, you're going to change it. And you're right. Because that piece is broke. That piece is actually harming you. And it may feel like it's the thing you need for comfort or some consistency in your life, but it's not. It's actually the thing that continues to tear it all down. Yes, the Lord seeks He seeks to change every aspect because he's trying to make us look more like Jesus every day. So surrender every area. That's why Paul writes, and all of this is really right here in verse 1. I didn't even have to go into verse 2 to capture this aspect where he says, I appeal to you, therefore, now therefore we always say this. If you see a therefore, you really should look back, ask this question, what is it therefore, right? But it's the idea of everything I've just said, Now do this because of what you've just heard. And really chapter 12 of Romans, we went through the whole book of Romans over the last several years. Chapter 12 is a turning point where basically verses 1 and 2, he's now saying, therefore, based on everything I've said in chapters 1 through 11, which is meaty, it's heavy, he says, because of that, where I unpacked these mercies of God, I appeal to you. It just, it's like Paul is saying, if, if you were to read this and, and understand even a small glimpse of it, it would, it would make too much sense for you to present your bodies. Like, if you just got a, a, just a piece of what we've just said for 11 chapters, it would be no, a no-brainer to you to say, all right, God, I'm yours. If that's all true, I'm yours. He's saying, I'm appealing The word here is parakaleo. This is the idea of to call alongside. The word appeal here, to call alongside. Paul is saying, do as I do. Come with me on this journey. I'm appealing. I'm bringing you alongside. I'm begging. I'm beseeching you. Come on. Why? Because of the mercies of God. And if if this is who God is to us, it's the least we could do to respond and surrender and say, if I'm just a creation, if I was made to worship you, if you did all of this stuff to set me free, Of course, I'm yours. Of course, it makes no sense for me to live otherwise. So by the mercies of God. Now, this isn't the character trait of mercy here in verse 1, but rather, as Stott wrote when he wrote on this chapter, he says it's the varied manifestations of his mercy. In view here, most likely, is the very sacrifice of Christ. The mercies of God are these. I think it's merciful, first of all, that God would create. He has no needs. He's God. He certainly does not need you and I. But in his infinite wisdom and in his desire to have us, he makes, he creates. That's a mercy in and of itself. It's foolish that we would ever think, boy, it's, it's a good thing God's got me, you know. That's silly. He could make you in a whole lot better version. I'm confident he could have made me in a lot better ways. I've got some flaws. There's some messed up stuff going on. And yet he had the mercy of creation itself. But not just that, a creation that he knew would betray and, be, and fall away. And yet that same God said, I'm doing it because I've got a plan. Part of my merciful plan is I'm going to do something about sin. Part of my merciful plan is this people made in my image are going to spend eternity with me. 
This, this is just a few of the mercies of God. This is what Paul's saying. If you just get a glimpse of any of these aspects, presenting your bodies back to him makes too much sense. You're his anyway. You're giving back to him what he created. And the best part is that when I finally line up under the creator, I finally start to understand my purpose. And joy and peace and all the fruit of the spirit we spoke of last week, they finally start to be relevant and evident in my life. It's amazing. He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. The living body. This is the sense, in fact, this word kind of has a similar aspect as, as how the, the, the bride and the groom now commit their bodies exclusively to each other. This is the aspect he's speaking on here is that we would exclusively be his. And the living sacrifice is a word almost nowhere else in Scripture. Bible talks about sacrifice all the time, and we kind of get our heads around that, this idea of, one who lays down itself for another, and normally that has to, there is a killing involved. There is a death involved with sacrifice. In almost every other place in Scripture, except here he says, your body's as a living one, which is almost sounds paradoxical. How can you have a sacrifice that stays alive? I think the intention here is that this is something we do all the time. We come back to the throne of God every day. We do this every moment of every day. I'm confident we have to do this when we step our feet out of the bed every morning because something happens to me while I sleep and I try to jump right back into the driver's seat. I have to come up again this morning, next morning, and saying, I'm a living sacrifice. I'm yours. I, I, I'm doing your will, God. I, I'm presenting my body this morning as a living sacrifice because there's a constant tendency for me to take over again. Living here is in fact a participle which has this sense of continuous action that as long as I walk this earth, Christ, I'm yours. And beyond that, I'm, I'm pretty confident that we're still totally his. It just gets a lot easier to do. I mean, heaven is, is, is not any, any different in the sense that we're totally God's. And we're totally his kids. It just is a removal from all of the other temptations and all of the other things that would, would redirect us from doing what we were made to do the whole time. Understand this, by giving yourself over to Christ, by presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice, it's not that you're doing something foreign to yourself. You're doing something you were made to do. And you're finally doing it. And that's heaven. To finally live out the image of God, what he's created you to be. That was the original garden scene. Walking with God in complete unity, with no sin. That they served Him, they worshipped Him freely, willingly. It was the name of existence. That's why they were what they were. And so now we feel this tension like, this is foreign that I would say, not my will, but it's the complete opposite of that. You're finally getting back to your heart's desire. A living sacrifice. Christ becoming Lord of all things, continually bringing every area under his lordship. Now, I understand this, believer. I understand this. This takes time. This is a process. Perhaps today, as you leave this room, God begins to reveal some things in your mind. Okay, this is some area. This is an area I haven't put under his lordship yet. I pray that that happens today. That if you just got one aspect and say, I know this is a spot where I've not made Jesus Lord. And I see what it's doing to me. This is an area I haven't fully given over to him. If that was 
all you got today, that would be a wonderful thing that you would begin to surrender until after, over time, as you walk with Christ, every area is put under his lordship. Give yourself completely to God. This is the idea of Scripture. And, and, and this becomes holy and acceptable, this ceremonially consecrated, set apart, and well-pleasing. And then it uses these words in verse 1, spiritual worship, which is really, really strange in the Greek. The words here are actually logicane latreon. Logic, you hear there, right? Like it's In fact, what he's really kind of saying here. And I understand where they got spiritual worship because Latreia has this idea of to lay on your face before God. It's, it's, that, it's this service. It's, that's the idea of Latreia. But Logicane has the idea that it's reasonable. What Paul's really saying is if you could look at the mercies of God, the most reasonable explanation would be worship. If you understood that God's created and not only that, he saved you and there was nothing you could do, he did it all, the logical, reasonable response is, I love you. I want to serve you. I want to go where you sinned. I want to be your son who you've designed. Show me your will. Guide me. That's reasonable. I'm, I'm, I'm never willing to give ground there. There's a lot of times you'll run into people, especially nowadays, that would say you've got to lay, you've got to lay your brain down to follow Christ. Like this is all about faith what we do. And don't get me wrong, there's a big component of faith involved. There has to be. But to say that I have to lay down my intelligence to follow Christ is foolish. Because actually, when I look and see the world, when I step foot on a beach, when I, when I see a great mountain, when I see the creation itself, for me, I immediately go, this is too big. <laughs> this is too big to be accidental. So my most logical response is, there's a creator. There's a higher power. That is my brain engaging my heart, not just the other way around all the time. I don't have to lay my brain down aside. I don't have to lay my, my thoughts and my intellect aside for me to go. The most logical response to a God who created and saved me and, and brought me up out of the pit, my, my, the most brain response I can have is, I love you. I worship you. I'm yours. My heart certainly engages with that. But it's all of this. That's why he says, I think, present your bodies, the whole self. Give yourself completely to God for his glory. This is what Paul writes earlier in Romans. He says in chapter 6, Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. <laughs> you, you, you're not dead anymore. You have new life, so use it the way it's designed. Dallas Willard in this book, in another spot, he says, for, First, there's surrender. That's the aspect we're dealing with now. When we surrender our will to God, we consent to His supremacy in all things. Perhaps we do so grudgingly. We recognize his supremacy intellectually and we concede to it in practice. Though we still may not like it and parts of us may still resist it, we may not be able to do his will perfectly, but we are willing to will it. This is the starting place, my friends. Don't feel bad. 
Don't be discouraged that there's a lot of areas not under his lordship. But has your will lined up under his? You begin to understand it intellectually. You begin, even though there's resistance in you, you say, okay, let's see where this takes me. Not my will, but yours be done. All right, God. If it's true, show me. Not my will, but yours be done. This reminded me of something. (laughs) And this is a hard step for humanity. So I'm making some light of it right now, but I think it's a good, it's a good illustration. I just recently rewatched Forrest Gump, all right? And before you judge me, like, just get your stuff straight. Like, it's a good movie. I know there's some problems. I don't care. It's a good movie, and there's some interesting lines in the movie. But there's this, there's this place where he joins the army, right? This spot where he, and for whatever reason, you're watching this whole movie, and Forrest Gump's got, He's got a low IQ, okay, he's, but he's a happy-go-lucky dude, and he's making a lot of great things keep happening to him straight up accidentally, right? But he joins the army, and for whatever reason, his personality just worked out for the military. And I love this one scene. It reminds me somewhat of, of basic in, in, in an opposite way, but he, the drill sergeant comes up to him in this one scene, and maybe you remember this, and he says, Gump, what's your sole purpose in this army? And Gump responds to, do whatever you tell me to, drill sergeant. And then there's some bad language there. But anyway, the the, the drill, just so you know, I I know this is hard to hear. I've never heard a drill sergeant who didn't use bad language. I met a lot of them. I think, I don't know if it's in their training manual, use these words. But anyway, it was a pretty truthful. But he says, you, Gump, you're the the best. You're going to be a general someday. Like he, he gives him all this praise. To some extent, when I, when I was watching that scene, and, and it kind of came back to my mind this week, in a sense, this is step one with God. To do whatever you tell me to, God. What is your sole purpose in this world, he might would ask? To do whatever you tell me to, God. How can I say that? Well, because he made you. <laughs> You're his. Now, you can choose I don't believe that, and I'm not going to follow him, but it doesn't make that any less true. It's still true. You're his. He made you for himself. He did. So what's your sole purpose? Whatever you want from me, God. Complete surrender then looks like saying, not my will, but yours be done. I'm yours to do whatever you want me to do. Oh, my God. And I'm happy to say that. That begins to change. As the more you say it, it just gets easier to the more you begin to live it. This is the consecrated life so that I begin to say, here are my hands, here are my feet, here's my mouth. Please change it. There's stuff coming out of it that I don't don't think is I'm spewing untrue things or, or hateful things. Take care of it. My hands, my feet, my body, my mind, my thoughts, my feelings. My feelings are out of control, God. Align them. Not my will, but yours be done. Here's my heart. Conform, transform all of this to yourself, not conforming to the world. Which leads to the second step. There must be surrender. Surrender is step one. Even if it's reluctantly, begin there. Say, all right, God, there's all this resistance, but help me with that. And then step two, offer your mind to God for transformation. Offer your mind to God for transformation. He moves from the body to the mind. Uses another couple of imperatives here, one negative, one positive. He says, do not be conformed, but be transformed. Both of these are imperative verbs. The first verb is kind of hard to say, but, but you would definitely understand it in English. It's suske matizo, suske matizo, which is where we get the word schematic. You kind of hear that in the Greek, right? 
The idea here is that you would fall into a pattern. A schematic is like a blueprint. It's like a mold. He's saying don't be molded. Don't fall into the same mold as the world. This is extremely easy to do. In fact, if you do nothing, you'll do this. You just will. You will, the, you will immediately begin to fall, funnel down into the mold of the rest of everybody around you. It's, it's the simplest path. He says, don't be conformed to this world. Phillips, when writing on this, he says, it squeezes you into its own mold, makes you into a pattern. And the world here is not the same as like the cosmos or anything. It's the idea of the culture. The aeon here is the age, the culture, the trends of the day. The easiest thing is to just funnel right into that. You won't make any waves if, if you just... This is, what, this is what I'm seeing around me. It's what my coworkers are doing. It's what my friends at school are doing. It's what my family is doing. It's what my neighbors are about. You've already messed up a little bit, though, the fact that you're sitting here right now. You're not doing a great job conforming. So if that's what you're aiming at, like you got to admit, you took a step this morning that wasn't that easy. You could have stayed in bed. So maybe I'm hopeful that there's a piece of you that wants transformation. I'm hopeful that that's why you're here and somebody hopefully didn't drag you here. But if that's the case, God can still use that. I'm trusting it. That we would move away from just, okay, I'm just going to go with the flow. <laughs> Instead, I'm going to be transformed. The world here is metamorpho, metamorphosis. Change into another form. Change from the inside out, in fact. As we just sang, that's the idea of this very verb that we would change from the inside out. Not just an imitation. Something I've been noticing lately, and I don't know if you've heard this on the news or seen this, but there's been these, these popular Christians that have come out talking about deconstructing their faith. And I'd encourage you to look into that. You know, I, I, don't, I don't see any danger in you trying to analyze that and understand that. But what I've observed is that there's a, a lot of believers out there who are doing a really good job at imitation and not transformation. And that they reach a certain point, and maybe this has happened to you even, my friend, where you were trying to do what's right. You were trying to look like you were obeying Christ. You were trying to go to church. You were trying not to cuss. You were trying to live right. Whatever your to-do list was, you were really trying to imitate what a Christian might be without transformation. I recognize something. It must be ext extremely hard to obey Christ without Christ. It, it must be so hard. If that's you today, there's a big step that you're missing. And it's an utter heart change that only he can do. We weren't called to obedience to him by our own power. We were called into obedience to him by his power. That's why he says, take my, my yoke upon you. For my burden is light. There's rest for the weary here. There's such a danger there that when we fall into that trap of I've got to live right, I've got to do right, there's an expectation on me. That's not why we do this. It's not why we obey. It's not why we surrender. It's not why we say not my will. We don't stop there and just say not my will and I'm going to do your will. Not my will and yours be done in me, through me. If this is where you're at today and you're playing a game of imitation rather than transformation, get on your knees when you get home. 
Say, God, I'm wrestling. This is where I'm stuck. I've been there, my friends. I was raised in a pastor's house. My dad's been a preacher for a long time. Trying to feel like <laughs> I've got to behave, right? There's, there's a behavior expect, expected of me. And if I fall off of that, I disappoint a whole lot of people. You might feel that way in your own, in your own sense, that people know that I'm a Christian. They know that I'm a church goer. I've got to live up to this. That's invitation and not transformation. The big difference is this. I obey Christ in transformation because I love him and I want to make him happy. I want to please him. The idea here is holy and acceptable, well-pleasing. God, I want to make you so proud. Not, I've got to do these things because people expect it of me. Or even if I don't do these things, he will... He will, he will pour his wrath upon me. He will do something evil to me. And that's not our God. Not imitation. Transformation. I need this. I need to stop just being a caterpillar who's trying to look like a butterfly and just go ahead and become one. Stop trying to cocoon up and say, oh, get, do y'all see my great works? And I'm, I'm a snaggletooth mess, right? Rather than just go ahead and say, God, I'm yours. You make me. You mold me. I'm a mess. Look at this. I mean, you can see it. And You shape me. You transform me. And I'm doing it for your glory because I love you. Not because of expectation. Not some other reason. I do it because of you. And this happens through the renewal of my mind. Character is who you are, my friends, when no one else is watching. That's how you'll start to know, is this imitation or transformation? Because we're really, really bad at doing this part when we're just looking in the mirror. The things that are actually going through your brain, the thoughts that are really going through there, that's the real stuff, right? That shows transformation, who you are when no one else is around. Paul writes to the Philippians in chapter 2, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. <laughs> Do this even when I'm not around, okay? Work out your own so salvation with fear and with trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do this stuff on your own, <laughs> You don't have to just put on a show when I show up to town. When the great evangelist comes around, no, this heart change should be happening when you're alone. That's transformation. He writes later in that same book, Philippians chapter 4, I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how, how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty with plenty or little for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. There he's getting at this aspect of understanding transformation is God's power, is Christ's strength, not our own. Another writer on this, and I felt like reading, this is a larger passage. <coughs> Excuse me. He writes that there's kind of a process that occurs. I'll read this to you. He says, if grace... And, and wisdom prevail in the life of the one who surrenders to God's will, he or she will move on to abandonment. Now that sounds dark, but follow along here. There's no longer any part of himself or herself that holds back from God's will. But there is still more. Beyond abandonment is contentment, 
with the will of God, not only with his being who he is and ordaining what he has ordained in general, but with the lot that has fallen to us. At this point in the progression toward complete identification with the will of God, gratitude and joy are the steady tone of our lives. We are now assured that God has done and will always do well by us, no matter what. Surrender, abandonment, contentment. God, not my will, but yours be done. He begins to show some areas. You abandon those. All right, fine. I'll make you Lord there too. And then this crazy thing starts called contentment, real contentment. No matter what, no matter what, that's amazing. This is the dedicated life. Every Christian is either a conformer living like the world or a transformer where none of us are in between, we're one or the other. So what's our part to play in that surrender? I want to give you a little bit of application on this one, maybe more than I, I do sometimes, but there's, there's these things we call spiritual disciplines. And I want to remind you, we've been saying this week in and week out, and it's really true, and that is grace, the mercy of God, the grace of God is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. We cannot earn our salvation, but it is not opposed to our effort. There is a part for us to play. One of the ways we could phrase this would be spiritual disciplines. And perhaps we don't teach on those nearly enough. It makes y'all very uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable because I know I often fall short here of giving God my best. I've had this thought lately. I wonder what I would look like if I truly got, gave God my best. Like what, what would that change if I did my very best for him? I'm, I'm confident my life would look quite different. If I gave him my all, my very best, there's some things even I hold back. And I'm hoping to learn these. I'm trying to, just like you, release them. The spiritual disciplines, we can read all over the scriptures about these, but these are habits. These are ways that we can be dedicated, ways that we can help in the process of transformation. He does the work. He, does, he supplies the spirit. But we have to do some things. The Bible doesn't just... Osmosis doesn't really work. I used to put the Bible under my pillow when I would get scared at night and think that maybe that would push whatever evil thoughts I had away, like when I was a kid. It doesn't really work like that. It doesn't just like seep in. You got to read it. I mean, you can do the, the ones that read to you. You go for that, my friend. I just don't like to read. Okay, do the audible one. That's fine. That's your part to play. Is If I'm to understand God's will and if I'm to understand what he's speaking about, I've got to... I've got to get it in me. If, if there's this process of communication, then prayer is a component of my disciplined life. If I'm to be transformed and begin to allow the Holy Spirit to engage me, I've got to come to Him in prayer. There's a bunch of things the Bible speaks on here. Fellowship, prayer, solitude, fasting, service, meditation, witnessing, confession, stewardship, sacrifice, even celebration. These are all aspects of spiritual disciplines. Y'all are like, I like that last one, celebration. Some of us are really bad at that one. Really bad at it. We don't celebrate the victories of God in our life. All we see is the negative all the time. We never say, you know what? God did something great right there. And we celebrate it. That's a spiritual discipline, believe it or not. The last step is this. Willfully and joyfully follow God's will. <laughs> the interesting thing is this. You can know it. It doesn't mean you're going to do it. 
This is, I think, where he finishes, is this idea that we would discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable, acceptable not just to him, but also to us, that we would follow it. For knowing and doing God's will are two different things. So when I test it, when I understand it, and he gives three traits, good, acceptable, perfect, that I would say, all right, all right, God, I'll go. Willard, when writing on this, says, Beyond surrender and contentment lies intelligent, energetic participation in accomplishing God's will in our world. We are no longer spectators. We are caught up in a vivid and eternal drama in which we play an essential part. We're no longer just on the outside looking in. You know, the Bible, of course, ends at Revelation, and right much of that hasn't happened yet. But the Gospels, the Epistles, all of this stuff concluded in the first century. Right? This, the Bible has a conclusion. Uh, and when it comes to Revelation, there are some conclusive events that haven't occurred. I got that part. But the church didn't stop. Like, so the, the, the way that Paul is speaking here is the sense that we're now a part of this ongoing process. The great, some have called it the great parentheses. That there's the Israelites, and that's written about in the Old Testament. And then there's the coming Messiah, which had been forecast for all those Thousands of years he came, he died, he did what he came to do, he saved, he saved us. And then there was a right many people who understood that and began this thing we call the church. And then the Bible is canonized and closed and here we are, waiting in the great parentheses. But it's so much bigger than that. It's not just a waiting game, it's not just, alright God, come on, like what are you waiting for? Now this is that part where we become more than spectators, we get in the game. That's the joyous part about this is we walk with Paul. We walk with the disciples of old. As, as they go through this, we go through this. Sure, our world looks different, but the same truths are still true. That God's will is clear. We can test it and discern it and see it like, like if we were to test metals. We would, we would put it under the fire, put it under the microscope and, scope and see that it is good and acceptable and perfect. And we would say, just as Paul did, just as John, just as the apostles, just as the hundreds of Christians in the first century, we would say, not my will, but yours be done. In that great parentheses, we live out the things he's called us to do until he returns or calls us home. It makes me wonder something, church. And I said this in week one, but I, I'm, try, I'm not really trying to just like play church here and just, you know, these are the things we should do. And it's funny because when you start a church and you start planning how to do church, you know, you've you got to have music and you've got to have, probably got to have a nursery at least, right? We've got to, because you guys won't pay attention if your kids are screaming at you, right? So we probably need to do that. And there's all this process of what does it look like to do church? And then I did something a few years ago and I went to Uganda and found out, okay, none of that stuff is church. All right, like they, we, we, right on the edge of Congo, I went to this church that they didn't even have a floor yet. They were beginning with this volcanic rock, which was an ankle breaker just to get into the building. And people just start pouring in here with their children. Half of them brought their own drums in. I'm like, this is exciting. Like, I don't know what's about to go down. I had a guitar that my dad had left there previously. I'm like, I've got the one guitar and 50 drums. This is going to be interesting. 
And we're going to sing music. And they know our songs and we know theirs, but they sing it in Rufambira and I'm singing it in English. The tune's the same, but I'm like, huh, I don't know what you're saying, but I think it's the same stuff, right? And I realize we don't need the technology. We don't have to have the music in this order. None of that's, if that's what church is, we missed it. We're just spectating. We're just playing church. No, church is where the people of God gather. That's church. Where the people of God who are serious about God's will gather. And that's what I want to be. We'll sing together, sure. But you know, we don't have to do that part. Certainly the psalmist speaks of bringing a joyful noise and having song. It's been, an, it's been the, the nature of not just our church and many churches, but, but all the way back to the nation of Israel, singing has been a piece of it. That's why we do it. But we do it out of obedience to Christ, not because these things have to happen to have church. We're the church and where we gather. And I don't want to play around anymore with that. That means, you know what that means then? When you leave this place, church didn't stop. We're going out as the church, and I don't know where you're going to lunch, but can you please tip well? Can, can you be good to your waitress or waiter? Can you not show your backside to the rest of the world? Because that's not, that's not the church. Transformation. We're not just spectators. I'm not Eastgate Church. <laughs> we are. We're the Big C Church in Rocky Mount. And I've noticed something. People really like dirt when it comes to church. And I think the reason for that is, is this is the truth. This is where the truth is at. When they see something that doesn't line up with that, they go, man, thank goodness there's broken people. Because if, they were, if these people represented Christ really well, then I'm, I've got to deal with the truth. So it would be better to just keep finding dirt so that I can go, well, they're very human. But if we start representing transformation, a committed life, this is what Jesus prays. Matthew chapter 6, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, start making earth look like heaven. Your will be done. You created this. This was your design. You do it. And I'm one of yours. I'm following you. It says in Acts 13, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Why was he selected? He'll do my will. Jesus says something similar to this. He meets with a, a woman at the well. This is in John chapter 4. And this is an amazing dialogue that happens there. But the, the disciples come up kind of late conversation looking at each other going, why is Jesus hanging out with this Samaritan woman by the well? They're kind of perplexed by the whole thing. But they interrupt and say and ask him, you know, are you hungry, teacher? What can we get you? And then Jesus who maybe is, I don't know, the Bible doesn't say, perhaps he's frustrated with them that they're inter interrupting a very important dialogue. I don't know. That's kind of me reading into it. But he says something that's strong. He says in verse 34 of chapter 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What feeds me is doing what God wants. What gives me purpose is doing God's will. That's the committed life. As the psalmist wrote in Psalm 40, chapter, or chapter 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. Church, can you say this with me today? Not my will, but yours be done. Can you say that with me in your heart of hearts? Knowing, and I know this with you, there's resistance. I understand that. But can you begin it? Surrendering, not my will, but yours be done, God, and start to reveal those areas 
where you're not Lord. Show them to me. A lot, a lot of you probably know them already. Surrender every area. Offer your mind to God. Willfully and joyfully follow that will. Let's pray together, church. Heavenly Father, I ask this morning that you would do what only you can do in us. Begin to show your will for us. Like a lamp, like a, a guiding light in front of us. That we would see, okay, when I say not my will but yours be done, God, I'm starting to see what that looks like, where that leads me. And that, God, you would encourage us on that path. That we would find the fruit of the Spirit on that path. That most of us in this room, God, would pray for things like peace. We would pray for things like joy and love and self-control. And God, we want those kind of things. Patience and faithfulness. God, make me more gentle. We love those aspects. Reveal to us where following our own will is actually a hindrance, is a blockade to peace, to real joy. Reveal that to each and every one of us right now. Help us to see. And God, I, I pray boldly, first my, for myself, here's what I know. There's some areas in my life that I'm holding back. I don't know why, other than just pure selfishness, I guess. If I was to put my finger on it, I'm not so certain, but it's not, it's not of you. The areas where I hold back either energy I don't give you my all or I don't give you my best. I give you a peace. God, I want you to be Lord of all in every way to the fullest. God, not my will, but yours be done. Church, if you're ready to say that, say that right along with me. Not my will, but Lord, yours be done. I'm afraid of what that means somewhat, God. I admit that. But I am trusting. I am believing that you love me and you want what's best for me. The cross is evidence of that to me. And if that's not enough, Lord, I don't think anything could be. That you would sacrifice for me should be enough evidence that you want what's best. And so, God, I'm saying it again, not my will, but yours be done. I want you to be Lord of every area. Dear friend, if you came here this morning, you've been trying to imitate You've been, you've been playing the imitation game rather than the transformation game. Rather than total transformation in life. And it's hurting. It's hard to do. It's a burden. Christianity feels a whole lot more like a list of rules and a whole lot more like a burden to you. If that's you today, perhaps it's the imitation you've been doing and not. I want to give you an opportunity, my friend, to say along with me a prayer maybe you prayed as a child, but it's time to come back to that. We may have said Jesus is Savior, but we forgot to say Jesus is Lord. Pray with me if that's you. If you're feeling that today, pray these words. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that you saved me. I know that you died on the cross for my sin, for my sake. That you took that peace away, the peace I couldn't do anything about, my brokenness. You've healed it. You sacrificed for it. 
And God, I know that you raised Jesus from the dead. I believe both in the cross and the resurrection this morning. But God, I've been trying to transform myself. I've been trying to live right without you. And God, today, I'm saying in a fresh way, Jesus, you are my Savior. You are my Lord. You are Lord of all things in my life. And I'm asking now, God, would you begin to comfort me in those broken places? Would you begin to restore me in those places where I hurt? Would you begin to show me the way to walk with you by your strength and not my own anymore? God, would you remove this temptation I have to live up to some kind of expectation that has nothing to do with you, but has to do with others or, or this role that I'm in in life? God, would you transform the way I think that I... I'm in obedience to you. I walk with you because I love you. Not because of what you would give me or not because of what people might think. I do it because you are my God. And I love you. And you died for me. And you're worthy. You're worthy of this life that, <laughs> that I have. I give it to you freely. Transform me now. Not my will, but yours be done. We say that together as a church in closing. Dear Lord Jesus, not my will, but yours be done. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.